The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me today, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm really glad you guys could tune in, whether you're listening live today or getting the podcast later, which I hope that you're doing. Make sure you subscribe. I'm on Apple, Google, Spotify. You can find me anywhere podcasts are available. And welcome. Today is going to be a really amazing conversation, especially if you're interested in health and wellness and how to be at your optimal physical condition and how you can kind of keep your eye out for things that are coming up. I've been spending time with this really fascinating book and it's called The Cordum Technique, How to Access the Human Body's Natural Blueprint for Health and Healing. So it brings up a couple of questions. You know, is it possible that you can be warned of health problems before they actually occur? And what if you discovered a process that would enable you to see health issues without expensive tests? Well, here it is, the cordum technique. So I'm excited to present this information to you today. My guest has discovered a key to understanding our body's own vocabulary of health data. John Cordum began investigating the human sensory system at a young age, and he found that our ordinary five senses have extraordinary capacities and that the human body has an obvious and consistent way of communicating health information. This is really fascinating. So in 2001, John tested his discoveries. So this has all been tested, and he wrote a book about it that we're gonna talk about today. So the book was first published in 2010, The Cordum Technique, How to Access the Human Body's Natural Blueprint for Health and Healing. So John joins me today for the show, and welcome. I'm really glad you could spend some time with me. Hello, Diane. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I first heard about your work from a good friend of mine, Katie Kuntz, and she's the editor of Unity Magazine. And she said what you're doing is really fascinating. So I'm glad that we can make the connection. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people over the years that do call themselves, quote, medical intuitives. And what they do is medical intuition, meaning that they can diagnose people's medical conditions by just using their own intuition or whatever system, I guess, that they have at at their disposal, but something that I wasn't able to do. So I've always believed that it was some kind of gift or special ability. And what you outline in the book is that we can be trained to do this. So that really got my attention. So can you tell me how this technique is different from that, from medical intuition or being a medical intuitive? Yes. Uh, And Diane, I mean, over the years, I've, I've called myself a medical intuitive just because you have to have a title of some kind. And when I've been on television, uh, you know, they, they use the word medical intuition because it's a popular term and it's something that a lot of people will have a general understanding when you say it. Uh, but what I you know, realize as I've been working with my clients over the years is if you call yourself a medical intuitive, it suggests that you are offering you know, medical advice or substitute medical advice. Um, which is not necessarily what I'm doing. Now, when I meet with people, yes, I mean, we talk about their health and the specific organ systems, 
But I began to see myself more as a biological intuitive. So as a biologist is familiar with how you know, the human organism and the systems and organs interact with one another, but a biologist isn't necessarily looking for disease or treating disease. Um, and I use the word intuitive. Now, I know it's kind of a, a secondary term today to uh, imply being psychic, and I don't make any claims of having any extraordinary abilities, although the more we talk, people will probably say, oh, no, this guy's really psychic. He's just not saying so. But um, when I use the word intuitive, I think more about like your, your keyboard, like a keyboard can be intuitive. It's, it's something um, that you can interact with naturally and easily. And so I've learned how to interact naturally and easily with the human body and understanding how the organs and systems are working and, and if there is an imbalance or something to uh, be investigated. Right. And, you know, as I was reading this, it's so interesting because I was thinking back to ancient cultures or the Chinese medicine system or Ayurveda, you know, things that are thousands of years old. And I'm wondering if those people at that time in those cultures knew this system somehow or, or they were able to figure it out because how, how else could people really diagnose things back then? But you say in the book, it's not really Chinese medicine. No, or anything um, like that. I, I'm, I guess I, I'm trying to look at the similarities. Yes. Okay, so just so people have a, a general understanding as they're listening. Um, when I look at people with my eyesight, okay, I'm using my, I'm using my ordinary senses. I don't see colors. I don't see auras. I don't see chakras. I don't see anything uh, extra or additional than you do or when anyone looks at another person. But what I did notice as I was a young boy growing up, that when I looked at people, I could blend my sense of touch with my eyesight. So when I looked at people, I had this experience of, of um, feeling. And when I say feelings, I don't mean emotions. Uh, and we'll talk about emotions later. Uh, but I mean like a, 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 a texture. So for example, if you were to look at a rock or to look at a piece of wood or to look at water, you know, I, I say that everyone has somewhat of a feeling element to their eyesight, that when they look at water, they know how it's going to feel it without even touching it. When they actually reach out and touch it, you know, they're going to have that experience of what it feels like. So as I was looking at people growing up, I noticed they had different textures. Some people were wet, some people were dry, some people were dense, some people were porous, some people were shiny. Um, those are just some examples. Uh, and over time, when I realized is when I would hear people start talking about their their health complaints or their illnesses, that's when I began to correlate. OK, so when I see this particular texture, when I look at a person, it relates to their lungs. When I see this particular texture, when I look at a person, it relates to their thyroid. Um, and what I found, too, as I was growing up, is that these textures would occur before an illness would set in or before there was any kind of diagnosis. So the, it opened me up to the idea that there's a consciousness within our bodies that is separate than our everyday consciousness. And if the human body knows a year, and in some cases it's been five or 10 years where uh, people's bodies have, have told me about the cancer that they will have in five or 10 years. If your body is conscious now that you're going to have cancer in five or 10 years and can tell me the specific organ, and your body can tell me about it. That's what that's what was intriguing to me in terms of um, you know there's a universal awareness within our species, within the human organism. 
Uh, so that's, you know, just in, in terms of introducing and, and comparing it to people who do see chakras or perceive chakras, people who do see auras or people who have x-ray vision. That's not how I um, perceive health. And because it is based in my ordinary five senses, that's what makes it teachable. And I've taught, you know, conventionally trained medical doctors. I've taught, um, you know, complementary and alternative physicians. And I've taught people that are just interested. I've taught people in the IT field. I've taught school teachers. I've taught plumbers. I mean, since it is uh, a language that lives within all of us, it is something that is natural to our being. So it's available to everyone. I think that's so amazing. That's what really gets my attention as I'm, I'm working my way through the book. I'm, I'm almost finished. <laughs> I'm still I'm still reading it. But it's it's so interesting because I do want to learn how to do this. And then I'm familiar with some other modalities, not that I know how to do it, but I mean, I'm, I was familiar with Chinese medicine and some concepts of the, the Indian uh, Ayurvedic system. But what you're describing is, is something totally different. But in, in the book, you say that you were able to, or not really able, but were aware of this at a very young age and then kind of refined it. And then I do want to tell people the story about how, you know, you were able to work with uh, Dr. Wisniewski on this. So when yes. you were when you were young, I mean, it was something that you noticed. Yeah, well, um, I want to say, um, you know, one of my first recollections of this is um, I was probably six or seven years old. It was the early seventies, and my parents were having some kind of a, a social gathering, you know, party at at, at our house. And there, it was mostly adults, you know, and so it was like me and my brothers and sisters kind of just hanging out, watching the, the adults talk to each other, which was kind of boring for kids. There wasn't other kids at the party. And I remember this gentleman coming to the party, and he wasn't anyone I really recognized. It was someone that my parents knew, but it wasn't anyone that lived in our neighborhood, and he was not a parent of any of my peers. And when he came in, he had this very much this dry, ash um, texture about him. You know, when I looked at him, I was like, God, you know, he's just, he looks just dried up. Um, and then he seemed preoccupied. He seemed uncomfortable. He didn't really seem to enjoy himself. He didn't talk very much and he didn't stay long. And then he left. And I remember overhearing my parents talking and saying he had just found out he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer, which had explained his mood. And, and that's when I was like, oh, so maybe that's what, you know, this, these textures mean. So then I had to wait until the next time I saw someone who looked dry, and then I had to find out if they had any kind of a respiratory imbalance or complication. And when you're a young child, you know, adults usually aren't sharing their health with you unless your mom or dad are sick, you know, you know, but like your neighbor's parents aren't telling you about their health. So I had to learn how to really listen um, very carefully so could, to hear people who could say, well, I'm going to the doctor or I've got asthma or I've got something like that. So it was just a long period of watching and waiting. And then over time, I found, okay, every time I see this dry indication, it relates to the respiratory system. So that was my first translation was the lungs. And you also mentioned in the book, I thought this was interesting, that you used to diagnose guests on The Tonight Show and on Saturday Night Live. So yes, you would listen to them yes. I describe. Mean, when I, when I, I, I would say that... Um, Gilda Radner assisted me in understanding the female reproductive indicator because when I would watch her on Saturday Night Live, I was like, okay, she's got a texture uh, and I don't know what it relates to. Um, 
And so then when she went public with her, with her health, um, that's when I started going, okay, so now every time I see that, I need to find out if, um, you know, if these people have that, um, uh, a reproductive imbalance. So sometimes, you know, when I would watch the Tonight Show, people already knew they were sick. And so when they would tell me what they had, um, I knew what was, you know, what's going on. And other people didn't know they were sick yet. And I would just kind of keep note and say, well, let's just wait and see what happens down the road. Um, and there's another right. indication so I look at when I, when I see people like what I call the lifespan moisture level, um, which tells me about a person's overall biological power supply that they have to draw upon during the course of their lifetime if they are faced with a um, you know, complex disease or cancer or something serious. Um, and people often think like the lifespan moisture level is like a tank of gasoline, that as you get older, your tank depletes. And that's not the case. Uh, I've known people in their 80s and 90s to have really robust moisture, and I've known people in their 30s and 40s to have uh, greatly reduced moisture, and many of those people are deceased. So there would be times on The Tonight Show when people would be talking about their health, and I could also look at their lifespan moisture level, and I would be like, I, I don't think it's, they're going to, I don't think it's going to end well, this person, in terms of, you know, longevity. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot that the body tells that I know relates to medical science. Uh, and, and, you know, I've taught other people how to see indicators. I've taught other people how to recognize lifespan moisture. And as I've worked with physicians over the years, they can recall when they were, um, you know, getting, uh, getting their degrees in medicine, they would work in cancer wards. And they said, well, you know, we would, we would recognize when people were on the eve of their passing or they had stage four cancer and they were the end. We could tell at that point their physical appearance is altered by the disease, you know, they looked really dry. Uh, but by that point, just in the obvious sense, it's too late. It's like when you look at someone and they're already jaundiced, it's too late, you know, the liver function is already broken down. I've learned how to see the quality of lifespan moisture um, when it's in the infancy of breaking down. So before it actually affects people's appearance to the point that anyone could see it. Um, so there's also that aspect of understanding, you know, what is it that the body has to say because if we learned what was the mechanism that causes the lifespan moisture level to be regulated within the body, for people who do have cancer, if we could identify what that marker is, then could we fortify their lifespan moisture so that they survive? Because when I work with people who have cancer and they have high levels of moisture, they tend to live. And when, I work, <clears throat> when I work with people who have cancer and they have low levels of moisture, they tend to not prevail over their disease. Uh, so I know that there's some, you know, clearly some medical uh, scientific applications in terms of what the body has to say. Right. Oh, definitely. I mean, if we could be able to see this ourselves and, and see it easily, like, I mean, just for myself, I'm, I'm so interested because there's, you know, definitely genetic markers in my family history of different things that I would I would love to be able to head off at the pass, you know, before it got to that point that there wasn't anything that I can do with it, you know, with traditional medicine. So this is so important, the technique that you're teaching people and, and what you're discussing. And just to let people know, too, about this technique, you go into in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you wanted to bring this information to doctors and you started working with Dr. Len Wisniewski and Beth Renee, who is a nurse practitioner and gestalt therapist in Maryland. And that's what kind of gave you the 
validity, I guess, because you had gone to other doctors and they were not even interested in talking to you about this. But uh, Dr. Wisniewski was. Yes, it was uh, a, an interesting uh, quest, I might say, you know, for a number of years. I mean, I, I want to say in the, in the late 90s, um, when I would watch some of the daytime talk shows and, and medical intuition or intuition and medicine and science was becoming popular and guests were coming on TV, I was like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I just assumed that maybe doctors already knew about what I could see. Or, and I began to realize, well, maybe they don't. And that's when I was like, wow, it sounds like, you know, they have these guest doctors on these shows who are really open to new ideas. So I was like, the medical community is, is open to this now. However, when I started, you know, knocking on doors uh, at university, medical universities or private practices, um, it wasn't the warm welcome that I was seeing people receive on the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> uh, right, so I could imagine. It was, it was like three years of, of knocking on doors and calling until I finally did meet, um, you know, Dr. Wisniewski and, and nurse practitioner Beth Frenet. And what? And Beth said something about you, you were talking medical intuition, and then she said, "Oh no, it's called something else." Like she kind of put a name on it that that gave it a little more validity. Uh, is that something you, you were reading that? from the book? I'm, I'm not quite recalling. Yeah. I was I'm trying to remember what she called it, but she kind of said, oh, well, you're you're looking at it, you know, in a totally different way. I can't I can't remember the, the term. I'd have to flip back <laughs> through the front of the book. OK, I want to say find one, that, I think that but... I had the initial phone call with them and I was telling them what I did. And I said, look, I don't I don't see chakras. I don't see auras. But, you know, this is, you know, when I look at people, I you know, but I but I have to be, you know, in the room with someone. I have to look at them. Um, photographs and, and um, you know, magazines and newspapers and, and video can be useful, but to really get the full spectrum of people's health, I need to be in the same room with them. I know some um, medical intuitives, you know, they, they just are given a name and an age and an address or something like that, and they get the information. Um, but for me, I have to be, you know, in the, you know, be able to look at someone, which then is what gives it um, application to healthcare providers, because when you go to your doctor, your doctor looks at you. Uh, and this is something that your doctor can include in your evaluation of health, and it's non-invasive, uh, there's no contraindications. Um, it's a, you know it's a non-intrusive um, approach. And I want to say, I believe um, Ben and Leth said, "Oh, you're an on-site intuitional diagnostician." I think was the word they they that's used. That's it. That's it. I was trying to remember and I was that, like, oh, that, that specific that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, you can see you know, clearly what the implications of of this could be, and I think they obviously, Dr. Wisniewski and and Beth, they saw that immediately that this is something that we really need to take a look at and understand how it works. And so someone like you that, I mean, you're not a doctor, you know, you didn't have any medical training or experience to really make health assessments by looking at people, but, you know, you were able to develop this technique, which is also, I want to point out why, I mean, normally, you know, people would be able to call and talk to some medical intuitives can do it over the phone by talking to people, but you really need to see someone. But if you were, if we were able to do a Zoom call and have people join us on a Zoom or something like that, would you be able to look at them, you know, on video and be able to, to make some yes. assessments? Yes, I mean, with, with the COVID-19 and travel shut down, because I'm used to traveling around the world to meet with people, um, I had to make the transition to online meetings. So, you know, I started doing Zoom meetings. So yes, it's, and it's been you know very um, it's been very effective. Uh, 
Right, right. And, right. And, so and you I can do it that way. Too, when, I, when I work with people, um, I mean, so basically, you know, Len and Beth invited me to their office. And as I was traveling to their office that day to meet them, I was, you know, preparing all these like, you know, I got, I got to have these really smart conversations with them. And when I got there, they were like, we're, we're not interested in, I mean, they, they didn't say this, but they're like, you know, we're not really not interested in hearing stories. They just started taking me into the examination room with the patients that were there that day. And they were just like, evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. And so in the course of that morning, um, I was correct in every circumstance of health. And so they were like, okay, we're, we're now, now that we've seen that you can do this, we're going to, you know, set up an opportunity to observe you. And I was there for 16 months uh, in the office. Wow. Uh, and when I work with people, and what it is, is like, and I know, you know, when I listen to some people doing medical intuitive stuff on the internet and stuff, people don't get to tell me their, their complaints, their symptoms, their signs. I mean, they just, they just sit in silence. And I say, you know, here's what I see. So it's not like when I work with people, they go, oh, you know, I have a stomach pain. And then I go, oh, yes, you have a digestive indicator. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just kind of ridiculous. Um, so people don't get to tell me anything before my evaluation. And I, then I do my evaluation. And then once I've recorded that and it's complete, then they can give me feedback about what they know about their health history. And, and one of the reasons that, I mean, there's several reasons to do that. Of, of course, you know, the doctors wanted to evaluate the accuracy and the legitimacy of this sensory-based evaluation. Um, so if John just doesn't know anything about people and he's able to, to identify what's going on. Um, but sometimes, you know, people may come to me because they have a digestive complaint and, and I would say, well, but your body's telling me that, you know, there could be some, some breast activity or some respiratory activity in your future. So you may not have any symptoms right now, but, you know, so that's why I don't want to like have people misguide me with them telling me what they think their health is. I do a whole body assessment when I work with people. And then after I've said anything, that's when they can say, okay, I've got some digestive complaints and I have this or that, you know? Right. So there can't be any kind of like subconscious influence or, or anything like that in it, in right. any yes. way. They're, they're yes. just sitting there and you're observing them. Correct. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, I really want to learn how to do this. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to study, I'm going to, going to be studying this book because this, this sounds so amazing. So what, what, you say one of that... my favorite, one of my favorite stories is I, I, um, I had a, a woman in my, one of my workshops and she, um, and she had read the book. I think, I think she had just read the book. I don't think she could come to the workshop, but I mean, and she looked at a woman in her office and said, do you realize you have a breast indicator? And the woman's like, a what? And she said, well, you know, I've been reading this book and, and, I, and I can see you have a breast indicator. You know, maybe you should go get it checked out. And she did. And she had stage one breast cancer and they found a lump. And that's just someone who read my book. That's, you know, just from, you know. So right. I know so people, you, I mean, there's, there's you, plenty of evidence. It can be taught. That, yes, it can be taught. Yes. Yes. That, that's what's so amazing. Well, you describe that uh, our perception of reality can be negotiable. And I think that's interesting because I I believe that you know we're we're born like these wide open kind of vessels and then you know over the years society or our family and and what we learn going to school and and all this stuff kind of applies layer upon layer of things that affect our beliefs and and the way we perceive our world and is is that what you mean that we can we can shift things by you know maybe examining some of those beliefs. 
Well, the, the analogy I use is that as we come into the world, we're all like soft mounds of clay. And our experiences, you know, begin to carve grooves and, and shape the clay. Uh, and so if you come from a, you know, a, a, a background of, you know, there's only one reality, you know, there's no such thing as extrasensory perception, and, and, and that's the environment that you grow up in, unless you're having experiences that are contrary to that. Because I didn't really grow up in an environment um, that was, you know, supportive of, of ESP. I was just having my own experiences. Um, because I do meet a lot of people that are like, you know, there's just reality. That's all there is. There's gravity. You know, there's no such thing as psychic abilities. Um, and I'm going to say, you know, around the time of puberty, then when the, when the, when the kiln of puberty fires up and, and, and fires the clay, then it hardens. And then that's kind of the, the mold that people go around with in their lives at that point. And what I'm suggesting is that you can soften your clay, but a lot of people don't know that. They just think it's just, you know, reality's always been this way, so it won't be, ever be another way. Right, that's it. There's the seen and the unseen, and they don't want to know what, what is happening in the unseen, I guess. Like, it's just kind of black and white. The infinite for, for skeptics, I think, is a, a, yeah. <laughs> a term. <laughs> um, that's true. And, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, some of the doctor, you know, when I was in Bethesda and people in the medical community, some people in the medical community found out what we were doing. And some, sometimes doctors would come by and we're like, you know, we're hearing this stuff that you, you know, and I'm like, OK, we'll demonstrate it for you. And they thought, oh, well, you know, the patient obviously told you what they were sick with before you, you met. This has been all prearranged. And I would say, well, that's not true. So why don't I tell you about your health? Because I know you haven't told me anything. And then when I would tell them what, you know, because doctors get sick, too, when I would tell them what was going on with their health, rather than go, oh, wow, this is true, they would get very uncomfortable and leave. It was, it was, it was that they didn't even want to consider the possibility. And I would say, too, you know, I, I've approached some medical universities about teaching this in their curriculum and was uh, in contact with a big medical university in the southeastern United States. And at the last minute, you know, they canceled the idea. And when I called to ask them why, it wasn't because they didn't believe it. It was because it was true. And, and the um, head of the medical department said, I would be very uncomfortable if I could learn how to see illness and then I looked at my husband or my children and could see the future of their health. That would be very unsettling to me. And I was like, wait a minute, you're well, a medical that, researcher. This is important. Yeah, that makes no sense at all. We're going to continue the conversation. This is so fascinating. The Cordum Technique, how to access the body's natural blueprint for health and healing. Talking with John Cordum, and we'll be right back. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me. After the break, I'm talking with John Cordum about his book, The Cordum Technique, How to Access the Human Body's Natural Blueprint for Health and Healing. And if you were interested in seeing John actually demonstrate this technique, we were talking during the break, and there are YouTube videos available if you just search John Cordum, K-O-R-T-U-M, 
and also on his website as well, you'll be able to see John actually bring people up in a workshop and be able to demonstrate how this technique really works. So, I mean, you're able to notice the unnoticed, right? I mean, you can look at someone and see certain properties or you were calling them um, not, it's not like something, textures, yeah, I was trying to remember the word. So you're actually looking at like textures in the skin and, and things like that. So can you, can you tell us what you what you go through the process when someone comes in comes in and they sit in front of you, you know, in an office for, um, you know, for a diagnosis? Well, when I when I work with people, I'm not. This is not. It's, you know, it's not a dermatological. Did I say that right? It's not. I'm, I'm not looking yes. at complexion. <laughs> okay, because you know people are going to have dry complexion. People are going to have wet complexion. Those are not indicators because lots of people have dry complexions. It doesn't mean they have a respiratory. Uh, imbalance. Okay. So I call it, you know, when, uh, one of the ways is I'm in the workshop when I'm teaching people, I use the example of a peach. So if you look at a peach, a peach has basically three components. It has the, you know, fuzzy skin. Then you have, you know, the meat of the fruit inside, and then you've got this core hard pit. Okay. So when I look at people, there are textures that I perceive right at the surface level of the skin. Then I perceive subcutaneously, I go into the meat of the fruit without having to open the peach. I can just, you know, look at a, a whole peach and perceive all those three textures when I look at it. Uh, and so then when I get into like breast and thyroid indications, that's where I'm looking at, you know, below the skin surface. And when I say I'm, I'm actually feeling below the skin surface, again, I'm not seeing um, like with an x-ray or going in. And then when you get into digestion, that's more of a, a at the core of people's um, fruit. So those like those three layers of those different textures of a peach are just some of the examples of, you know, how I perceive or, or show, teach people how to perceive what it is that I'm talking about. So people will just sit in front of me. Uh, 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 an evaluation is very conversational. Uh, you're now with Zoom. Uh, it's just over the internet, but people just sit there and then uh, it takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to evaluate the entire body system. Uh, and then, you know, the remainder of the, of the uh, session is then me telling them what I see. And then they give me feedback about what they know about their health or don't know about their health. Um, and what's interesting, too, is sometimes what I, uh, you know, I tell people, you know, I'm gonna, I may tell you information you already know. I may tell you information you don't know. And I may tell you information that contradicts what you know. An example of that is when I was. Um, evaluating uh, a, a person and um, I, you know, I said, you know, your, your neurological system looks fine to me. Everything's okay. And they had a very unusual startled look on their face. And I said, well, what, why, why are you doing that? And, and the person goes, well, I have a brain tumor. And I was like, are you sure? And they had the MRI. And it's like, there's a mass. And I said, well, your body's telling me that you don't. So now what do we do in this situation where we have, you know, conventional medicine saying one thing and the body saying another? Um, and as I was discussing this with the physician that was present during the evaluation, you know, the, the, the patient actually spoke up and said, well, um, you know, I had, I had double vision. I couldn't drive. I couldn't work because the tumor was putting pressure in a certain areas of my brain. But I decided not to get chemo. I decided not to get radiation. I didn't want to have any radiation in my brain because it could cause other damage to my brain if they're treating the, the tumor. And she said, but the tumor is going away by itself right now, and the doctors don't know why. And I don't have double vision anymore, and I'm back to work. 
Um, and that evaluation was 10 years ago. And I had a recent communication with this person within the last 12 months and, you know, they're living a normal life. Uh, so then again, there's an example where, you know, a meeting with me is not necessarily intended to, to match your conventional medical records. And most often it, it does. When I was in Bethesda and being evaluated, you know, I was determined to be 93% accurate. Uh, and the way that was determined, too, was in order for me to get a hit, there had to be a conventional diagnosis. So if I said I see a thyroid indicator and they've been diagnosed with Graves' disease or Hashimoto's disease, that would be a hit. If I said I see a thyroid indicator and they're like, oh, the blood tests show everything's fine, but then six months later the patient comes back and their thyroid levels are off, that would still be considered a miss. Like they can't take the future data and go back and correct you know, six-months-old data. Or if I looked at a patient and I said, you know, I see something going on with your hearing and the doctor said, well, all medical tests show normal. And the patient said, well, no, wait a minute, I'm having trouble hearing in my left ear. Patient testimony is not considered a conventional diagnosis. So that was also considered a miss. But, you know, the doctors I work with realize the re relevance of this. If we can, you know, pick up on an indication six months before anything's going to manifest or in, in a test, or if the body can tell us what the patient's already experiencing, you know, this is important, but even under those parameters, it was still 93% accurate. Um, and I've maintained about a 93 to 100% accuracy range since 2001 over the last 20 years. I mean, that's a, a pretty amazing percentage. So what you're saying is that you can't see the threat until it has reached a certain threshold. Would that be correct? Well... So what I, when I, okay, let me clarify how, how, okay. So for example, if you twisted your ankle this morning, Diane, you're all of a sudden not going to have a muscular skeletal indicator. Okay. Or let's say you have the flu right now. You're not all of a sudden going to have a sinus or respiratory indicator. Those, you know, those are like, you know, the body's just used, used to bumps and bruises along the way. The body only shows an indicator when this is a, something chronic um, or something significant to the health of a person. Does that clarify? Okay. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I mean by reaching nope. a certain threshold. Understood. But if you but if you have you know constant you know chronic allergies, yeah, you probably have a mild you know respiratory indication or maybe perhaps a sinus indication. And could you tell us some of the body's indicators that you observe? What are these actual? I mean, you talked a little bit about texture. What are some of the other actual indicators that we could maybe start paying attention to? Well, I would say textures have a range. So some are much more visually based than felt based. And as you move through the spectrum of the bodies and organs and systems, eventually you'll get down to where they're much more felt based. So when I'm teaching people in my workshops, we start off the one with the indicators that are much more visually based. So it's most easy for people to see. So a blood indication is a really good place to start with, with teaching people this. And what I think is interesting, too, is, you know, when I do have doctors and nurses in my workshops, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you, I, I had no idea I was seeing an elevated glucose indicator all along with my patients. Now that you've shown me what that is, now I realize my patients have, you know, those that have diabetes or hypoglycemia, they have this, um, you know, elevated glucose indicator. So. When I teach a blood indication, and there's two ways that I perceive a blood um, illness. One, if it's about blood ingredients, so the iron, the potassium, the sugar, the cholesterol, and then there's another if it's a blood illness. Okay, so there's two ways to perceive blood. 
Uh, so if you've ever looked at someone who has a sunburn, you know, you can you look at their, their face is red. You can, you know, as you're looking at them, you can feel that there's kind of a tension on their skin surface from the redness, okay? Uh, and, I, and I do actually notice that some people that do have some um, blood illnesses, they, their face actually is red, and it's not necessarily roatia or, or eczema or anything like that. Um, but what you want to do is you want to be able to feel that texture when you look at people who are not sunburned. You want to be able to, to, to connect with what a sunburn feels like, not what it looks like. Uh, and so for, and for people that have like elevated blood glucose, I perceive what is like a powdered sugar or a pastel, like chalk dust, about their complexion. Um, you know, and for people uh, uh, that live in like, Africa or uh, India and other places where they have maybe a darker complexion, I perceive cinnamon for those people when I perceive an elevated um, glucose level. Um, so there are some variations across the population in terms of what indicators are like, but it's still basically the same. You just make some modification between someone with a light complexion and someone with a darker complexion. Does that right. give you okay. some, some? Yeah, I kind of get the I'm visual. Yeah, of what you're experiencing, I can I can definitely visualize what that would look like. So one of the things that was really interesting that I read was that there is a process of intra-organ communication that, I mean, I can see where one organ would be affected if, if it's malfunctioning, would affect something else and so on and so on. Like, I think every everything is connected. Is that right? Or you, you believe that, right? I mean, things well, are connected in the body, so it would affect things. Is that what you mean by intra-organ communication? Well, what I found is, you know, for some people's bodies, it, it feels like the organ system is really in communication with one another, where other people's bodies, when I work with them, it feels like the organs are isolated from one another, that the communication isn't as good as it can be. Um, and what happened, I want to say about halfway or three quarters of the way through my time at Bethesda, uh, you know, we'd be evaluating patients and it would be a situation where we have a you know, vegan yoga teacher with cancer, okay? So the doctors were like, okay, you know, we understand that you can you know, see the in in indicators, but can you tell us why th this person is sick? I mean, according to cause and effect, this person should be healthy. And we have plenty of people in our practice that admit to using tremendous amounts of toxins on their uh, health history, and those people do not have cancer, and they are not sick, at least not right now. I mean, we don't know what might happen by the end of their life. But why is it we have, you know, young people, vegan yoga teachers with cancer? So that's when I moved from feeling with my eyes to hearing with my eyes. And I know it's a very strange uh, description. And I began um, at that point the introduction of what I call organ dialogue, where I began communicating with people's specific organ systems. Um, and the body didn't necessarily speak in words. The body didn't speak like a genie rubbed from the lamp and is now just going to tell me, grant all my wishes and tell me the secrets to medicine. The body spoke in kind of multimedia. I would uh, get flashes of memories of these of these people's in their life, of, of, of the person's life. I would hear like sound bites of conversations. And I was supposed to put all these puzzle pieces together to, to arrive at an understanding of what the body was communicating in terms of why they were ill. The body began to make the distinction between the weather and the terrain. 
So what the body means by that is diet, fitness, exercise, lifestyle, that is the weather. Okay. Emotions. That is the weather. There's going to be sunny days. There's going to be rainy days. There's going to be happy days. There's going to be sad days. There's going to be days when you, you know, really stick to your diet. And then there's maybe days when you deviate and have some Twinkies, you know, that, you know, that's going to change, you know, from day to day. The body talks about the terrain of health and what's there every day, rain or shine. And that is when the body began telling me that this is what relates to people's fundamental health and in the long run of their health. So given that I worked in, with um, you know, just all therapists and other people that had integrative practices, the doctors were doing a lot of therapy, you know, in addition to just you know, standard medical um, practice with their patients. So they had a lot of data on their marriages, their lives, their careers, their depressions, all of that, you know, what was going on. So again, uh, you know, people can't talk to me. I didn't know anything about their lives. And when I begin to tell the doctors, you know, their liver is telling me uh, this about their life. They would say, well, that's very interesting. You know, we've been doing therapy with this person for several years. And that is, yes, an ongoing theme in that person's life. What we didn't know was that that ongoing theme had anything to do with their liver dysfunction. You know, we're just treating, you know, the liver independently from what's going on in their lives. Now that we see that these that there's a connection here, this brings a lot more value to the table. Uh, so I'm working on a second book, which is gonna basically be about all the conversations that each of the organs have um, and what people can do to you know, really affect the long term of health. Uh, it's not about, again, the book's not about diet, exercise, it's not about meditation, it's not about um, lifestyle uh, or anything that's, you know, current or popularly known. Um, and again, the body having information to share with us is not a new idea, but it's the content of the information that is new. And other doctors have told me that, that they're not aware of any other medical tradition talking about this. And so that's why I'm writing the second book, because I think it's, it's really important. And what I have found too, is when people listen to what their bodies say, they get well in about six to eight months without any medications, treatments, diets, lifestyle changes. They don't have to avoid wheat or anything like that. Now, I wanna be very clear. I'm not telling you to ignore your doctor and I'm not telling you to stop taking your medications. That's very important for me to say. Um, sometimes people have the expectation that when they come and meet with me, they're just gonna speak with me for an hour and they're gonna get well by osmosis, just being like, just having a conversation with me. Or they expect to get well in a weekend. I mean, penicillin, if you ask me, penicillin was the good news and the bad news. Um, you know, it was great that people no longer had to die from infection, but it set the standard where people want a pill that's going to, we want to start seeing results in 72 hours, you know? So it took us out of relationship with our bodies. And the reason my understanding from the body is the reason it takes six or eight months for people's health to return is think about new year's Eve, Diane, where people make the, you know, resolution. I'm going to start working out. Okay. So the first week of January, the gym is packed. The Bowflex is, is showing up, and by mid-February, the Bowflex is out in the garage, and people aren't using it to hang their laundry on, or you're at the gym, and you're looking around, and like nobody's on, the, nobody's on any of the machines. It's just you. you know, there's always that initial, yes, I'm going to work out, but then when it comes time to actually do the push-ups, people lose interest. So the body's not going to be fooled into a false sense of, of, of change. Now, I'm going to say you don't have to make any diet, fitness, or lifestyle um, changes, but you are going to have to make some changes in your life. Uh, 
And I'm, I'm thinking of here what would be a good example of that. So for example, with the thyroid, and I know thyroid for women is very uh, prominent around the world. Women have thyroid complications everywhere. And I think it's interesting in, in third world countries where there's a lack of iodine in the salt or lack of salt in the diet, you know, conventional medicine's understanding of that is the reason there's, you know, over in India or whatever where uh, they have less salt-rich diets, that that is the cause of, of thyroid disease. In the United States, where we have a very salt-rich diet, well, thyroid disease is considered an autoimmune disease. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If we just send salt to India, will people's thyroid disease change from a, a lack of salt to an autoimmune disease? Um, so, I mean, there's just some, you know, interesting information in terms of how the geography of health plays out. But as I've worked with women over the years, and again, the, the thyroid is much more active for women than with men. You know, men have the prostate. I, I, I compare the, the thyroid for women and, and the prostate for men because that seems to be more with what men have going on. But in my conversations over time with women um, with prostate, is that the prostate is about their personal power. And you know, I, I definitely you know, recall working with a woman where um, she was in a marriage where the relationship was really based on you know, the husband being the authority and the decision maker. And um, so she comes home and she's like, ah, I met with John and he says, I've got to start being powerful. And he's like, honey, that's so great. I really support you. Now what's for dinner? And she goes, well, actually, I'm going to start being powerful with you. <laughs> it starts now with you. And how do you think that went? Because the whole marriage was based in, you know, that she's going to be right you know, supporting actress to the leading man. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, for some people, I mean, now they got to take a look at their marriage. Now, in this situation, um, you know, he was willing to to work with her and support her in that. And within about three or four months, her thyroid disease went away. And, you know, you know, 15 years later, she's still, you know, no beta blockers, no T3, no, no anything. But and again, that's what I mean by, you know, some changes. And again, the body's not going to be lulled into a, a false sense or promise of being powerful. The body wants to actually start seeing the rubber meet the road and seeing how you reposition yourself in relationships. And that will right. Our emotional world. Yeah, what you're saying. I mean, our, our emotional world and, and situation definitely affects the physical one. Um, I, I mean, that. yeah, that's I, I can see that for sure. And when you read about you know, epigenetics and things like that, where it's not so much our, our DNA that's going to indicate what's going to happen. It's also the environment, like what's around us and, and not just what we're eating, like exactly what you're saying. It's more the, um, the emotional component as well. Well, and we can take a look at two, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say too, that within the family lineage, in addition to DNA, there's other aspects that travel through the family lineage. And again, people don't know that it relates to health. So for example, in our study of psychology, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that if people are born in a household of domestic violence, the chances are that they will grow up and recreate domestic violence in their lives. They'll either be um, a spouse that harms their other spouse or children, or they will select a spouse that will harm them. Okay, there's plenty of evidence to show that that pattern repeats. There's not a, you know, there's not a domestic violence gene and, you know, in the guanine or thymine chain, you know, but what we're looking at is if, if women come from a lineage where in their household, they're, they are trained to be 
subservient or powerless in their relationships. That's going to travel through the family lineage. And then medical science will go, oh, well, your mom had hypothyroidism. Now you have hypothyroidism. So it must just be in your family. They're not tracking the fact that, you know, mom has passed on this behavior to the daughter. Right, right. No, that's so that's so interesting, because if I look back in my own family, I can see, well, I, I came from a long line of warriors. You know, my grandmother worried about everything, was like anxious. My mother was the same way. I see it in my sister. And I'm sure that it's playing out in in my in my physiology as well as my my emotional world. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Even yeah, though there's absolutely. not a gene uh, for that, you know, I see what you're and saying. It, and for you know, for for many children, the conversation we have with ourselves, if if, if we're not happy about the household we grow up in, we say, you know, when I grow up, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm going to make sure that I'm not like my parents. And then the day comes, you know, you, you, you'll say things to yourself, like, I'm never going to do that with my kids. I'm never going to say that to my kids, you know, when I grow up. And then the day comes when you have kids and all of a sudden out it comes out of your mouth <laughs> and you promised you were never going to say it. So, you know, there is a lot of information or evidence that suggests that, you know, a, a, there's a lot more traveling through the family lineage uh, than just the biology and DNA. And if you can interrupt the pattern of behavior, you can interrupt the legacy of disease. Right. Just be a disruptor or so it's being aware, right? I mean, you have to you have to be aware of of that because some people would deny, oh, I'm, you know, oh, I'm not a worrier. Oh, oh, I'm not. I don't have anger issues or something like that. Well, but I will if you're say, aware too, I, mean, it, I remember one time a woman came to see me and I told her, OK, here's what I see going on with your health and here's what's going on in your life that your body's telling me. And she was furious. She was like, this is ridiculous. This is not true. Like what you're telling me is I, I don't do that. I don't behave like that. I never do that. And she kind of left the meeting rather unhappy. And she called me back the next day and she said, I went home and I told my husband what you said. And he agreed. I do all that stuff that you said that I, that I said I didn't do. <laughs> right, he was we like, don't it's true. <laughs> and now I have to look at that because from my perspective or from her perspective, it wasn't true. So awareness right. is, is really important for people. And, and obviously, you know, a primary step in repositioning yourself in relationships, you know, you've got to become aware too. And in the second book, I'm working on a, a systematic equation where you answer five questions about your health to uh, give you information about where you are positioned in terms of, so, so for example, you could ask, answer five questions about your thyroid and it would give you a value between one and 10 of your power level in your life. So that way you'd have to look at that by the way you've answered these questions. If you, you know, deny or disagree with what you're saying, and then you look at the number value, it's going to be more accurate. And I do remember one time meeting with a woman and talking with, with her about her thyroid. And this was actually the, one of the times that the body actually did use English. And I said, you know, you've got to take a look at some of the, you know, the power situation in your life and you're giving your power away. And the woman said, that's not true. I'm very powerful in my life. And then I heard her body go, she lies. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, now what do I say? But I mean, I continued working with her. But I was like, but for a lot of people, it's not clear. Or for a lot of people that, you know, they like to think that they're powerful. I mean, I, I, I think most people like to think that they are, they've got their lives all collected and put together and, and they're doing great. Um, and to be, you know, hear that we might have some flaws or something, it's not appealing to people. Um, 
But I realized I had to come up with some way to give people an indication about where they really do stand in uh, their life. And, and so we've talked about power thyroid for women. So for men is, is prostate. Pro prostate is about safety and security in the world. Um, there's a really great video I have on YouTube about a gentleman in one of my workshops um, that was involved in 9-11. And uh, he, was in the, he, was in, he was in Navy operations. Um, and he didn't realize he was holding on to a lot of fear about what happened in 9-11. And you know, he had elevated PSA, he's got a large prostate, they're doing biopsies. And when he started looking at his fear in the world, his within six months, without any medications, treatments or anything, his, his prostate shrunk and his PSA levels went back to normal in the blood test. So there was medical evidence to support that. Um, and you'll find that there are a lot of prostate, uh, more than the average prostate health imbalances in people in the military and the police and fire departments where you have people in life-threatening um, occupations. And you don't necessarily have to be on the front lines of the battlefield in the military. You could be in an office in the Pentagon or somewhere, but you're still under the context of, you know, the United States could be attacked, and my job is to defend our country from attack. Um, therefore, the world is a dangerous place. Uh, and the more people can be, right. begin to see that connection, there's a connection between my power and my thyroid. There's a connection between my security in the world and my prostate health. That's when people can really well, it's, get their hands on the steering wheel of driving down the road of their health. Well, what you're presenting is, is so amazing, and I can't wait to read your new book. And we just have about 30 seconds, so I want to send people to check you out, John Cordum, K-O-R-T-U-M. You can find some videos on YouTube of demonstration of this technique, which is so amazing, the Cordum Technique and keep an eye out for the new book coming out soon. And thank you so much for joining me today. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Diane. I've had a wonderful time. I'm, th I'm, I'm glad I could share with you. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.